0: (laughs) Greetings, TPN, and welcome to another episode of the Pilot Network Podcast. Joe here once again, and today I had the pleasure to have a conversation with David Cohen. David is the Dean of the College of Aeronautics at Lynn University in Boca Raton, Florida. Dave served 26 years active duty with the United States Air Force. The majority of his flying time with the Air Force was on the 135 platform, but we actually got into a couple of his non-flying assignments, which I found to be really fascinating. After retiring at the rank of colonel, Dave moved on to be a manager of operational costuming, inventory, and warehousing for the Walt Disney Company. That's right, folks. You heard it correctly. We do get into that, so stick around for that. After moving on, he went on to inspire the next generation of pilots by teaching the Air Force JROTC in Orange County Public Schools and Aviation in Lake County Schools in Florida. Cohen started his experience in higher education by bringing dual-enrollment aviation programs to the Orange and Lake County school districts as an adjunct professor with Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Cohen holds a bachelor of science in aerospace engineering from Boston University, a master's degree in industrial engineering from New Mexico State University, and an MBA from Washington State University. He was also a national defense fellow with the Institute for Defense Analyses in Alexandria, Virginia. More than all that, Dave is a thoughtful, insightful, and inspiring guy. I really enjoyed our conversation, and it was such a breath of fresh air to talk with somebody who is working with young people, who is working with young pilots, new pilots, and really has a passion for education and for improving the lives of not just young people, but pilots all People coming from other careers, you name it. And it was a real pleasure, a real treat, and I'm sure that after you hear what Dave has to say that you'll agree the last thing I want to say is that I have to say thanks one more time to Dave because he was incredibly patient with me and a couple of rambunctious pooches that I had making a ruckus during our recording, and he, and he was very gracious about that. So thanks so much again for that, and for all of you listening, I hope you enjoy this conversation with David Cohen. Dave, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Sean. Glad to be here.
0: I wanted to begin not with aviation, but I wanted to begin with something that you mentioned in our first email, and you made mention of the fact that you were judging a debate tournament. Can you (laughs) tell us more about that and what your involvement in that community is?
1: Yeah, so it was, uh, we just moved down to the Boca area here about uh, two or three months ago, and I got, uh. Kind of out of the blue, a request from an organization um, that basically puts together debates—not for the debate itself, but really to to build um, critical thinking, communication skills um, in kids from middle school all the way through um, all the way through high school. And so the uh, the idea is these kids will build um, arguments pro, con, on whatever the topic has to be. They've got to research it. And then extemporaneously, they've got to give a debate and then debate each other and ask questions. It was really kind of an interesting experience. I hadn't uh, I hadn't seen it before. I hadn't participated before, but they asked me to judge. And uh, I did. There were um, senior leaders from all over the community. Uh, my particular group, we had a mayor, we had a district court judge, um, some lawyers. And so it was really interesting The the topic, which is probably um, how they uh, how they found me um, had to do with should the United States continue to spend money on space exploration, um, and the perspectives were really very interesting. Um, again, from from young people who you probably wouldn't think had an opinion one way or the other on the topic, um, and they were very insightful and very articulate, and uh, it was really it was a lot of fun.
0: That sounds really cool. And, uh, you know, it makes it reminds me of a few years ago, I guess it's a number of years ago now, I actually went to one of the women in aviation conferences. And I wish I could remember the name of the woman who spoke, but she talked about her time working on the Mars rover. And I was incredibly moved. She got a standing ovation, which she <laughs> definitely deserved. It was an incredible description of that program. So I have my own opinions. But Uh, Do you have thoughts on that about space exploration and whether or not we should be involved in that game? I I do. And for
1: uh, not surprisingly, I am uh, I'm very pro uh, space exploration. I mean, we can look at so many of the different um, advances we've had in technology that in and of themselves probably wouldn't have occurred had it not been for the desire to um, to explore space, to see what else is out there. But I think more importantly, as uh, as mankind, as humanity, we need to see what's there because it helps us figure out where we came from, what's next, what does the future for our planet look like, what other opportunities do we have to go elsewhere and do other things? Um, it can be a little science fictiony, and and we're going to live in outer space and live on far off planets, um, but that may not be too far from the truth in the next hundred years. Um, you know, Mars, I think is, is quite literally around the corner and there can be conversations about, should we put people there? They should be, continue to be robots. Um, and there may be different perspectives, but again, I think when you look at the benefits that you, that humanity really will get science technology, um, from just going through that exercise, it's, uh, it's definitely beneficial. And, um, I continue to be an advocate for, uh, for continuing our, our space program.
0: I love it. I'm I'm in that same camp for sure. I I remember a few years ago I was on a deadhead and I was watching one of my favorite movies, Apollo thirteen. Just a great, great movie. I mean, you can't yep. if you don't get goosebumps watching that movie, you are a robot. I'm sorry. It just it's one of those. And and it it occurred to me. I did a little research afterwards, and I'm sure the internet will correct me on most of this, but I kind of looked up the evolution of the gasoline engine, and and I I realized that a human being born January 1st 1886 was born into a world where the first patent for the internal combustion engine had not yet been filed at 83 years old that same human being could sit in their living room watching a magic box in the corner <laughs> while an American a human being walked on the moon and and if that's not reason enough to continue to explore I I really don't know what is
1: I agree I mean we we look at, we look at the entire Apollo mission as, um, the ability to explore the moon, but it was really, it was so much more than that. In fact, uh, in my, Part of my previous life, uh, one of the lessons that we would teach would be about the engineering process and scientific method, and we would use the Apollo thirteen um, explosion and how the astronauts dealt with it, and then the entire issue about the the filters being the wrong shape from one vehicle to another, and how did they get around it, and what would you do if you were in that position? Um, and it, it really is it's a case study in a lot of things, um, not the least of which, of course, is is the engineering, and I think it's. It, it's hugely helpful um, to develop excitement in the program to say, "Look, this is this is a problem, and it was solved by human beings back in you know in in uh, the sixties and seventies when the technology was not nearly what it is today." Um, so that's uh, it, it is a a driver, I think, for a lot of um, the things I like to talk about and get kids excited about aviation and aerospace
0: truly incredible uh, feat of engineering and human will and I actually wanted to segue from there to your origin story when in terms of aviation and um, your decision to join the military early on but in doing so I I wanted to ask you because I I was digging into a lot of the things that you posted on LinkedIn and I found a post for Memorial Day this year and I wanted to ask you about your neighbor Colin growing up if you could share that story with our listeners.
1: Yeah. So uh, as a kid, I was, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight. I literally, I think uh, in that house, in that neighborhood, it was kindergarten through probably about third grade. And um, there was a kid up the street, friend in the neighborhood. We played trick or cheat the whole mess. And, uh, and it was Colin and his, uh, um, he just had his mom. Well, at that age, I didn't really think a whole lot of it until one day. I'm not sure what, spawned it to happen. But I asked my mom, I said, so where's Colin's dad? Um, and, uh, and my mom sort of uh, hesitated for a little bit and said, Colin's dad was, um, had a job to fly airplanes in the air force during the war. that's this, of course, of the Vietnam war and, uh, flew out one day, um, was shot down and they haven't found it. Um, as a, of course turned out he continues to be missing in action. Uh, was never identified as a POW. Uh, we, I still remember sort of sitting around the the TV as the POWs were coming home, being repatriated. Um, some little bit of hope that we had that uh, that Major Cushman was going to come down the stairs on that airplane, and of course didn't happen. But it it was a unique experience for me because I simply asked my mom. I said, why? why did he go? Why didn't he just say, I'm not gonna go do that? And uh, my mother um, correctly said, it's because it's what he signed up to do and it was his job and he was doing it to protect our country. Um, At the time for a, whatever, eight, nine-year-old, it didn't really sink in, but of course, um, now in my later years, having worn the uniform myself, um, I completely get it and uh, to have, have a deep sense of respect for what major Cushman did, um, the mission he was on and that he raised his hand and said, I will do this, um, literally, you know, support and defend the constitution of the United States, um, with the ultimate sacrifice. Um, and again, as a, as a little kid, it didn't really mean a whole lot, but now of course, as I've gotten older, um, that has really sort of set in and I now have, um, uh, again appreciation for for him for what he did um, certainly sadness for his family we I've not kept in touch uh, with them but uh, it was it was sort of an interesting moment in my childhood because I don't know that most kids sort of grow up in that environment where it's possible that a neighbor a friend um, could have lost a parent um, in combat and so it was um, it was one of those things that I don't know if it singularly shaped me, but it added to, uh, it added to where I wound up.
0: Yeah. I wanted to, uh, I, I mean, what an incredible, um, impact that must've had on you, but also I've read up on major Cushman and just what an incredible, um, story. Um, he was, I think trying to make the olympics as an athlete i mean he, he was a yeah. impressive man just beyond his um sacrifice for our country of course
1: Definitely. but i ac-
0: i wanted to make mention too of the defense pow mia accounting agency if if people aren't familiar with these folks and the work they're doing there are people out there right now today looking for missing in action um soldiers airmen seamen and all of that marines and they're doing incredible work. And I really encourage people to go check out uh, Major Cushman's story, but also just more generally, you can search for, you know, POWMIs by location. So you can see people from your home state, your home community who are absolute heroes. And it's really interesting to read um, sobering, but interesting to read many yes. of those profiles.
1: And and I think what's, what's also interesting is that uh, the accounting agency doesn't just look for you would consider modern combat, Vietnam, um, Afghanistan, Iran, but we, uh, we've identified that there may be remains from World War II that we weren't aware of at the time, couldn't identify them, but of course now DNA testing um, has made everything um, from a science perspective so much easier than to be able to put closure to these families um, for, for these heroes who, who fell serving their country.
0: Yeah, it's really amazing the work that they're doing, and um, I'm glad they're out there doing it. So I wanted to uh, hear more about some of your other influences. What are some of the other things that got you thinking about aviation, flying, the military as a young man?
1: So I think it, it probably goes to uh, uh, to the, the very beginning. Uh, I was born in uh, the United Kingdom. My dad was active duty Air Force. Um, wasn't a flyer, was a uh, logistician. Um, but, uh, that probably had just about as much influence as, as anything, at least from, from the military standpoint. And then simply being around the military, um, uh, especially the air force, um, airplanes became the cool thing. I always kind of kept going back to, to flying and airplanes and what does this look like? Um, and how can I be a part of it? And, uh, my dad had, had, uh, left active duty. Not long after I was born, we came back to the U.S., um, to Nebraska, and he joined the Nebraska Air National Guard and was with the Nebraska Air Guard for uh, for decades. Uh, retired with, uh, with a star as uh, the assistant adjutant general for air for the state. Um, and so through all that time, I had direct connection with uh, the Air Force, with flying. Um, whether it was going out with him and just uh, hanging out at uh, um, at the base or in his office or uh, getting a quick tour of, uh, of the facilities or just standing out on the fly line watching airplanes, um, it really began to, uh, I think, form in my mind this is really something that I want to do. And I don't think there was a specific moment where I said, aha, that's it. It was just always kind of a passion. And um, of course, Flying at that time, of course, it was, it was primarily commercial. I hadn't started flying on my own, but you know, I always wanted the window seat. I always wanted to be on the wing because I wanted to see how everything was working, and um, it just sort of started to build from there. Um, and I really didn't see myself—if you would have asked me, you know, even in high school—would I have been here, having done what I'd done? I'm not sure that's the answer I would have given. Um, but uh, it sort of worked out that way, and it was really the continuous passion of, of flying and aviation and technology that got me to, to keep going down the next path. There wasn't, um, there wasn't a huge, big goal at the, at the end. It just kind of – there were smaller goals as I, as I went, um, and that's, that's kind of how I got here.
0: So you have a bachelor's degree from, in aerospace engineering from Boston University. Is that correct? That is correct. And did you go to Boston University knowing, hey, I want to join the military or was that something you decided on when you
1: got there? So I I did. And in fact, um, I went to BU on an Air Force ROTC scholarship. Uh, So I had made, I think, a decision very early on that the military is what I wanted to do. But flying actually at that point wasn't part of the equation Um, at that time. Um, the space shuttle was was really getting into its heyday, and we were starting to look at other exploration. And I wanted to be an aerospace engineer, and I was going to go design the next shuttle or pieces of a shuttle or the rocket for the shuttle or something. Um, and that was really the goal. And at the time, the Air Force was tremendously short on engineers. And so they specifically were giving scholarships uh, for engineering electrical mechanical aerospace whatever the uh whatever the requirement was and so i had applied then for the scholarship based on that particular degree um and then i I had everybody says why boston i had grown up in Nebraska. I loved Omaha um, and I'd lived there for about 17 years and there was life on the other side of the Missouri river and I had to go find it. So I went to Boston and I found life on the other side of the Missouri. Um, and it was really, it was a tremendous experience, a learning experience um, for this kid from the, the suburbs of Omaha to downtown Boston. Um, the, the first few weeks living in the city and the sirens and the sound of the, the, the metro, the, the T, Um, And trying to figure out exactly um, how to get around. It was all a new learning experience and a process. Um, But absolutely loved it would not have traded it for the world. Um, It wasn't a standard sort of college campus like you might think. It was right smack in the middle of the city and, uh, and it was great and and loved it loved the experience and of course in addition then to the to the college experience um i had uh i had the ROTC scholarship and then so went through uh, air force ROTC there at BU um continued through all four years i was the the um uh, the unit commander the cadet commander uh and then upon graduation from BU then was commissioned in the air force uh as a lieutenant wonderful
0: i i appreciate you giving us that background and i wanted to sort of there's a lot to talk about over your 26-year Air Force career. And I'm, I i kind of want to bookend it, if that's all right. And I was wondering Absolutely. if we could start by uh, having you tell us about your time in New Mexico.
1: So my first Air Force assignment, um, <laughs> I remember I got my notification and I was assigned to the Air Force Weapons Laboratory in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Kirtland Air Force Base. Um, I'd never been in New Mexico. It was a long way. I was still in, in the East coast. And I thought, uh, New Mexico. Okay. In fact, I had a friend who said, you have to have a passport to go. I said, oh, <laughs> I think it's actually still part of the United <laughs> States. So no passports required. Um, but got out there really fell in love with the city. Uh, the city of Albuquerque is um, a tremendous place. There's, there's things to do in the, the environment with the mountains and everything else is, is great. Um, the job was tremendously interesting. So I was a laser systems engineer. Now this was in the uh, late eighties, um, during the time of the Reagan administration and Ronald Reagan had this concept of anti-satellite uh, weapons. So the bad guys put satellites up or missiles or rockets or whatever it is, and we can shoot them down with lasers. And the media at the time um, referred to this concept as the Star Wars system. Um, so I guess I literally worked on Star Wars, but we worked <laughs> we worked both uh, ground based and space based anti satellite laser systems. And I was an aero engineer. I understood airflow over wings, and I understood propulsion. I didn't know squat about lasers, and got a, <laughs> uh, a pretty in depth education um, at the time. Anyway, I could speak about photons and and energy and the different types of lasers, and whether it was a gas or a solid laser, and on and on. Um, But it was a it was a very interesting time to be part of this growth in technology um, because it hadn't really sort of taken off. Um, We were building um, systems. Our contractors really were building systems for us. One was out in White Sands Missile Range in the middle of nowhere, southern southern New Mexico. Um, Another was out in San Juan Capistrano, California. They were completely different systems. (laughs) They were purely experimental. Um, but it was great to be on sort of the ground floor of that. Um, another piece that we had um started working was a system called LIDAR. Uh LIDAR is now everywhere. Um cars use LIDAR for backup and collision avoidance, but at the time it was a pretty new technology, and the concept was uh we were gonna use it to, to measure frequency changes so you could actually find drug processing laboratories in the middle of a jungle, wow. which was really again wow. kind of a, a cool technology. And uh, and that's how my Air Force career started. I spent about three years there at the Weapons Lab. Um, really enjoyed it. There was there was a lot to do. Tons of responsibility for um, for a brand new lieutenant, and and it really, in spite of the fact that it really had nothing to do with flying whatsoever, um, really got me uh, got me started. Um, the, uh, I then had a friend who had gone to, uh, through ROTC with, um, she had gotten commissioned and was a public affairs officer and she had applied to pilot training while she was on active duty. And she got in, I said, how'd you do that? So we talked about it and I thought, well, I always wanted to fly. I might as well, I'll apply and see what happens. Um, and about the same time I was getting career guidance. You got to work on your master's degree. You got to work on your master's degree. So I started that and then i got some more guidance that said you also need to go get your private pilot certificate so Uh um was you know single guy in new mexico and so i was busy traveling flying working on my masters and uh and it all sort of culminated in applying to pilot training and the air force said yeah we'll do that so i got accepted air force pilot training after about two and a half years there and uh, then uh then my career made sort of an abrupt 90 degree right turn but uh but it's been great
0: i really find it interesting it it seems like the more stories i hear from people and then just people that i know personally some of the r- most intriguing tales are folks who didn't start out saying taking the traditional path they started out with some other interest that's maybe adjacent or completely different and then they get into flying Either by accident, kind of, you know, or just, hey, I'm gonna, you know, take a flyer, so to speak, and see <laughs> it, see if it works out. And yep. it's always really interesting to hear um, how it works out for those folks. In fact, I think some of those folks end up being even more enthused over their um, career about things because it's like, hey, I never, never could have dreamed this, and here I am. So.
1: We, we've actually got, I've got a couple of flight instructors now um, that work for me. One had been um, in marketing and then had become a flight attendant and decided she wanted to sit in the front end of the airplane and another um, had worked uh, in, in advertising and was a writer. And again, they sort of made these rather drastic changes, but I'm with you. I think there's some, um, something that to be said about the fact that these were adult level decisions, right? They didn't make these back in high school. They waited until they really had a perspective on life and then made that. And therefore they were really completely vested. Um, not to mention in fact from a, from a monetary perspective, but um, vested emotionally right. um, and philosophically in this new career change. And they, they're fantastic pilots.
0: I have noticed that um, I've had a number of first officers over the past couple of years who have had other careers and it seems like right now it's incredibly common because 10 years ago somebody who was really sharp who was looking at what they wanted to do for a career they looked at flying and they're like man the the juice just ain't worth the squeeze at least it it wasn't obvious that it was at the time right there was Mm -hmm. the path to get there was really um treacherous and now people are saying hey i've been an engineer or i've been in marketing or i've been doing some other yeah I've been a lawyer I've been doing some other profession for 10 years and I can afford to go out and get my ratings and I can make a living for myself and I can do what I love and and I've really enjoyed um hearing the perspective of a lot of those folks out there on the line and so you spent the majority of your time on the 135 platform
1: I believe I did yeah so so pilot training in in Enid Oklahoma um I Vance Air Force base uh the the plus about Enid Oklahoma is it's Enid Oklahoma there's not a ton to do but study and fly and so um, did that for uh, for a year through Air Force pilot training and then got uh, got selected to fly the 135 and that was my primary airplane uh throughout my Air Force career I had a, some time in in a handful of other airplanes but but the 135 was kind of where uh, where I flew all my hours
0: Okay, right on. Yeah, I wanted to actually jump ahead. And if, if there's highlights there that we're skipping over that are important for us <laughs> to talk about, absolutely, let's talk about them. But I was really interested about your last assignment uh, in the Air Force and then and then the ensuing transition. So can you tell us about that final assignment?
1: Yeah, so um, I had uh, I had been the, the vice commander at uh, McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. Um, loved the assignment. It was great. Um, a lot of experiences, deployments. Um, and then it was my next assignment. Um, and as a, as a Colonel, you don't really get to pick your assignment. In fact, you're told don't ask we'll we'll tell you um so i sort of sat on my on my hands and uh, eventually got notification i was selected to be the director of staff at air university um maxwell air force Base, montgomery alabama so uh, au is kind of the air force's university as the name sort of implies but looks at uh training and education not just sort of from a university perspective um but to include professional development um, all the way from the brand new airmen um, through general officers. And so we literally had programs and colleges within AU that did um, that that first basic bit of this is the Air Force for our airmen all the way through general officer transitions. Um, part of AU also included the Air Force Institute of Technology, which is the Air Force's graduate school at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Um, and so there was a tremendous amount of, of academics involved, but really across the entire spectrum of the Air Force. Um, and as the director of staff, I kind of ran the staff agencies day to day. My boss was, uh, was a three-star commander and president of AU. Um and a great guy, Dave Fedok. Um, he was a tremendous leader and, and I learned a a great deal from him even at the latter part of my career. Um, and so that was really a, a unique perspective because I wasn't an academician. i flown airplanes, basically, for the better part of my Air Force career. Um, But at that point, it really became more about managing people and managing programs and budgets, working with the higher headquarters, trying to make sure um, that the focus and the direction and the goals that the leadership wanted to put in place, we were executing quite literally on a day-to-day basis. Um, And it really was, it was a fun assignment. Um, I did enjoy it. And, uh, and the Montgomery area was, uh, was kind of a great place to be. We met, made a lot of friends there.
0: Cool. I really appreciate you sharing that. I, uh, went and looked up Air University cause I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't in the Air Force. I spent some time, uh, in the army many years ago, but I, uh, I watched their, uh, I guess, promo video maybe is sure. what you might call it. But sure. very motivating. I was like thinking, man, I got to put some books in my backpack, go to the library. <laughs> I got really, really uh, tuned up to to get some work done. But you'd mentioned uh, your boss there and some lessons that were maybe new for you. Do you have any examples you care to share or, or what you
1: learned from, from your boss there? I, I think some of the, the most important things that I learned there had to do with working with your staff, um, identifying what everybody's pluses and minuses were, um, and working with that. You know, so many times, um, I think in, in industry especially, you find the right person and you put them in the position. Well, the Air Force it, you don't sort of go out and really hire people. You you kind of get who you get. Um, fantastic people, amazing people, and, and clearly the mission gets done on a daily basis. Um, but it does require a little bit of extra um, work simply to, to build a team out of uh, folks that may not have ever been in the same career field together um, throughout. And I think that was one of the things that I really sort of learned there. Um, General Fadak had this uh, sort of great attitude where he would ask a question and I'd work for a number of generals. I had some time in the Pentagon and the DC area. And, and sometimes you are, you are told what the story is, and this is what you're going to go do and go do it. Got it. Um, General Fadak's perspective always was come in. Let's talk about it. Tell me what you think. He may not have always agreed, um but it was it was this senior leader that was listening um absorbing and then making a decision based on his experience and then the input from his folks and and i really appreciated that um that was kind of a a lesson that has continued to stick with me um as i've gone on to different things um in the leadership position i want to make sure that i'm taking everybody's input again i may not take it um as my final decision But it's a perspective and it's a perspective I may not have otherwise had. And it has made me think I've actually had um, a couple of times where I had had subordinates saying, you know, if we did this, I thought, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do that. Um, So it's it's those kind of things that I think uh, much larger than flying. Again, this is the the leadership, the working with people kind of thing that um, was very beneficial and that I, I really enjoyed.
0: Yeah, that's great. Nobody has a monopoly on good ideas. And sometimes and <laughs> you know, a lot of times it's like, I only have one good idea about how to fix this problem. Uh, I'm going to need some help, you know, uh, exactly. from other smart people. So I think that's great. And it sounds like that sets you up swimmingly for your next position and your first position <laughs> back in the civilian world. And I definitely want to talk about that position. But before we do that, I want to just take a peek inside your mind in that last, I don't know, a couple of years or last year leading up to separating from the Air Force. There's the airlines, there's corporate flying, there's lots of flying stuff. And then there's lots of business stuff that you could do. How did you go
1: about making the decision about what you wanted to do after? Um, So as, as it was going through, which I understood to be the, the sort of the twilight of my Air Force career, um, it was probably in, uh, somewhere around, um, 2012, 13, um, I was trying to kind of figure out what, what do I want to do when I grow up sort of thing. Um, I had kind of gotten to the point because I had been late to start flying in my Air Force career, um, and didn't have the, um, maybe the number of hours that my peers did, but more importantly i had watched a number of them go through the up and down cycles with the airlines and and commercial flying um and it i i watched some of them furloughed multiple times and that just didn't seem like fun at that point in my life um married kids had already departed and and so i wanted a little bit of stability and coupled with that um I still wanted to be involved in operational stuff, doing things, Um, and I wanted to do it with a company that I enjoyed, that I respected. Um, I thought about uh, various contract companies that, you know, contractors that do a lot of work with the Department of Defense, and that seemed interesting, but I kind of wanted to do something different. Um, So I thought about things that might be different uh, from a a 26-year military career, and I'm Pretty sure I found something that was maybe not completely the other end of the spectrum, but a different part of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, pretty close. So you go to work for Disney.
1: So I went to Disney. Um, I had always been a Disney fan, um, had been to the parks handfuls of times in my life. And uh, as I started to get older, I really appreciated the company. And I appreciated that the company continued to use Walt's vision um, to do what they do. Um, whether it was, it was in the parks, whether it was movies, whether it was with, um, you know, companies that acquire like Pixar or Marvel or, um, uh, any of those things, it was really was an interesting thing. And, uh, while I was at, at MacDill, um, we had built a new hospital while I was there and the medical group commander had a unique perspective and the timing was perfect. He said, you know, we're not dealing with patients. We are dealing with customers. These are our customers and we need to learn how to do customer service. So he worked with the folks at the Disney Institute. It's uh Disney's leadership training arm. And they built a program to teach the medical folks how not to deal with patients, but how to deal with them as customers. Wow. And uh, it was really an interesting program. And I had the opportunity to go uh, for one of the sessions and really got hooked. It was, um, it was quite literally it was the magic um of disney that sort of hooked me and it was kind of at that point i started thinking all right when this air force thing is done maybe i the disney thing i could do disney um so um went through um my prep for transition as i realized that all right it's it's time i need to go do something else um and I love my Air Force career. Um, and it's time now for something in, in the next chapter. Um, really started to look at Disney and made some contacts down there. Um, at the same time, I started looking at opportunities that they may have. And a lot of folks in senior positions that I was looking to maybe emulate had either, had either um, uh, were lawyers or had MBAs. Well, I wasn't going to law school. Um, it was a little, little late in my life to, to think about doing that what an MBA seemed possible. So, um, the last year and a half, two years, uh, I did that when he got my MBA, um, started networking, doing all the things that, that you're sort of advised to do, got very familiar with LinkedIn. Um, and eventually made some contacts at Disney, had a number of trips down there, saw the facility saw the people saw what the company did. I mean, it always looks so nice and smooth to the guest in the park, but below the waterline, there's, there's a lot of action going on. Um, um, and from that, I really decided this is something I want to do. So a position, uh, um, became available in creative costuming. So I became the senior manager for, uh, Costuming and warehousing. So not the costumes the characters have, but everybody else. So everybody who works in the park, their uniforms, their clothes, are costumes. So we had responsibility for Disney World, Disneyland, and the cruise line, um, and and it was a, it was a massive undertaking. Huge warehouses, um, literally millions of dollars of clothing back and forth um, across the coasts. Um, from suppliers, quite literally all over the world. Um, and it was really an interesting and exciting time to see really firsthand um, how the company, what the culture was, how it all worked together. Again, you, you see it a little bit as a guest, but you don't see the underlying um, effort that it takes to make all that happen. So um, yeah, so I did that for a couple of years and it really was, uh, it, it, it was a magical time.
0: Well, that's great to hear. And I want to rewind just a little bit to the customer service session, I think you called it, that you got to attend uh, during at the at the medical facility facility there at McDill. Can you do you remember any of the lessons or thoughts that you took away from that or anything about that presentation or whatever they did for you there that that have stuck with you?
1: Yeah, it was uh it was really was it was a 2-day event and they they sent us to Disney World. So we were in one of the the resorts in one of the the conference rooms for a couple days. And and I think and I don't remember the specifics of of a specific lesson, but it really had to do um the overall theme was the customer, the person who is is paying to whatever fill in the blank. Um, Disney's case, it's go to the park, it's buy the merchandise, it's watch the movies and turn on ESPN, whatever it happens to be. But in our case, it was serve patients. And why should they come to you? What is it that you're providing? Now, again, in our case, they, they were sort of stuck with it, the military right, health system right. for military people. But that didn't change what the perspective needed to be treat them as if they could go somewhere else. So what is it about you? What is it about your culture? How are you developing that culture? How are you not just giving it lip service, but how are you as a leader instilling that culture in your people? Um, And that really kind of stuck with me, not only for my time at Disney, um, but really throughout the rest of, of my Air Force career. And then of course now doing other things is, you know, people ultimately can kind of vote with their feet. If they're not happy, then they're going to go do something else. So I need to not only want them to come in, but everybody in my organization has to feel that. I want somebody to walk in to my facility with my people and understand what it is we do, why we do it, why it's important to us, and why we want that person walking in. Um, to feel welcome and feel part of what we're doing. And I still do that today, even here at uh, at Lynn when we get visitors or guests coming in to view our, our facilities. And honestly, I do it every day. Students walk in, hi, how you doing? Uh, make it an, an, uh, an engaging environment. You know, what lesson are you? what do you guys do today? Um, because that's the thing that keeps people coming back and it keeps them motivated.
0: It's really amazing how big a difference, at least in my opinion, it, it can make when a student or an employee, feels like when they walk in the door that somebody's happy to see them. And I really think that that can carry people through some struggles and certainly learning to fly will um, induce some of those struggles for, for most of us. We all run into roadblocks along the way. And I, I definitely want to come back to that culture piece when we talk um, shortly here about uh, Lynn and what you guys are doing over there at the university. Sure. Um, but I was curious then, so you you made the transition into Disney and then you decided to transition into education and, you know, you could have stayed and worked your way up and climbed the ladder there. And, um, I'm sure you were, I'm sure you were killing it there. So what, what made you, or what, what were the things that contributed to you making the decision to move into education? Uh,
1: yeah. So, so throughout my career, many people referred to the, the the style of my air force career as eclectic. I think my civilian career has been equally as eclectic. Um, so, I had a a buddy who was teaching Air Force Junior ROTC in Miami-Dade and uh, after he retired out of the Air Force and he sent me a note while I was at Disney, hey Dave, this opening for another school happened to show up in the Orlando area where I was, thought you might be interested. And I thought, I teach high school, I can't see myself ever teaching high school. And then I started thinking about it and then I started doing some research and I went out and I saw where the school was and I kind of talked to some folks and I thought this, this actually sounds kind of cool. I loved what I was doing at Disney, but I was missing a little bit of that air force piece in my life. Um, And while yes, it's with high school kids, it was still uniform wear and it was still uh, responsibility and citizenship and, and, it was teaching, which at the end of the day, I think I really enjoyed more than I kind of admitted that I did. So then made maybe another 90 degree turn or 45 degree turn and then started teaching junior ROTC um, in high school in the Orlando area. And it was just, it was fun. Um, you know, these are kids who are who are sponges, who want to learn. Um, they're still high schoolers, so they come with high school issues sometimes, <laughs> Um, but really I started to kind of, um, appreciate that for what it was. And the kids seemed to really be enjoying it. It was something that they wanted to do. It wasn't just, you know, an elective I have to take, or it gets me out of PE or whatever it happened to be. They were really interested. Um, and, and so I did that. So then taught, um, there in, uh, in the Orlando area, um, at that school for uh, for five years, and at the end of the first year, part of the reason that they had hired me is because I was a pilot. And so, as a um, as a pilot, there's a ground school that ROTC had in the curriculum that you can teach. And so, as I got done with my first year, I said, "Okay, I think I've I got all my first year teacher stuff out of the way. I'm ready to kind of learn how to do that." And the response was, "Well, great! Now you can build your own ground school." <laughs> I thought. Uh, okay, that's a lot of work. I'm not (laughs) Jefferson. I don't know that I could build a ground school from scratch. Well, luckily there was a partnership with another school in the Orlando area with Embry-Riddle. And uh, that was the beginning of uh, four years of a tremendous relationship, really six years of tremendous relationship with Riddle. Um, Ended up teaching um, not only junior OTC, but within that program, dual enrollment classes uh, where our kids literally were taking private pilot ground school in high school, but they were doing it as a riddle course and getting college credit for it. Um, I had probably by the time I was done somewhere in the neighborhood of a dozen to a dozen and a half kids who actually had gone on to then get their private pilot certificates, um, which was really tremendous. Uh, While I was there, we built a 501c3 nonprofit for scholarships. Um, So we had kids who were, you know, uh, flying around, on scholarship money who had applied who really wanted to do this um i now as i speak right now i think three of them are at uh, military academies two in colorado springs one up at west point Point. Wow. Um, and and i've got a couple more than our rtc programs and and you know sitting back that's just cool right to be part of somebody's life um, I'm certainly not taking any kind of real credit for that. Clearly, they've got parents and they've got mentors and influencers in their life. But just to have had a little piece of that to have said, hey, I helped this kid achieve flying dreams. Um, that was pretty cool. Um, so left, left that, uh, that district to another school district in the area because they'd actually asked me to build a program, not just in one school, but for the entire school district. So wow. um, I did that for a couple of years before, uh, before Lynn University came calling.
0: Well, that's, that's really amazing. And I'm sitting here thinking about this and there's a couple of things that stuck out to me. One, I think sometimes it can be so thrilling to just be even a small part, which you were more than that because you were instrumental in, you know, standing these programs up, but it can be so thrilling to be even a small part of a really important team. And that's kind of what you were. it's like they have parents, they have other teachers, they have all these influences, but you got to serve a role, and you got to see them have that success and that must just be incredible
1: it, it really is I think anytime that you can have have an impact a positive impact obviously on somebody's life that's great and sometimes it's you know hey, great job, good you did well um, but other times it can be a little more meaningful and i've had um I've had kids write me notes after and i Will readily admit there were probably one or two tears that those notes generated because it means something to me to be able to to help people to influence um, what they've done, how they're going to go about their lives, what things might be next, opportunities that they never envisioned um, they were going to have. Um, I had a young lady in at the last school I was at in a school district um, who had won a scholarship through Air Force ROTC to uh, to go fly. But she had gotten that idea because she was taking my private pilot ground school class, and every day was she would send me notes. um, Hey, here's what's going on. Here's what I'm doing today. Um, You know, my cross country didn't go so great. Or those those soft field landings could have been better. But all the way up into the check ride, I was I was there with her, and that just it, it it makes all of it worthwhile. You know, the long hours, the 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 frustrations the everything else but to be able to help somebody achieve those dreams and now she's off to uh, to ROTC on a on a great air force career
0: amazing mm-hmm. amazing there are so many pilots especially in the airline world um I can't speak for the corporate world I haven't I haven't been there but um corporate flying world but so many pilots in the airline world who get to a certain point in the in their career and it's very evident to having everyone around them that they are bored frustrated they just don't have a something that feels challenging and b something that feels really fulfilling and that's part of why I wanted to ask you about some of these career transitions is because I think we undervalue that and I'm saying this for myself as much as for anybody I think if we're gonna decide to fly the line at an airline we have to acknowledge that most days if things are going the way that we want them to go it's not going to be super exciting and it's not even going to be super challenging most days you've got the rhythm down you can you've probably been to this airport at least 30 times you've probably flown the same approaches and so you know sort of interpersonal challenges aside that we also try and avoid you know there's really not a lot there for what was once a highly driven purpose driven individual and so i think it's incumbent upon us to, if, we, if we're not going to get that piece in our main work, although I think there's ways we can approach even airline flying that can help with that, that we can actually get some purpose out of it. I think sometimes we, we pass that up, but if we're not going to get that, I think it's incumbent upon us to go and find somebody to help teach a kid ground school or do some instructing on the side or coach a little league team uh, judge debate. (laughs) Yep. There you go. So, um, yeah, that was, go ahead.
1: I'm sorry. I was just, I was going to say that when I was in the Orlando area, partly because I was involved in the school, but I actually did it outside of just my classroom and my kids. Um, I was involved in the Young Eagles program with EAA. Um, if you're not familiar, viewers, not familiar, it's really, it's an opportunity for, um, students from eight to, to 17 to go fly in a general aviation airplane. And so the, the, the pilots donate their time, they donate the airplane fuel, et cetera. And it's a 15, 20 minute trip around the extended pattern. But many times it's the first time a kid has ever touched an airplane, let alone flown in one. And if that can sort of light a spark, um, then I, I think that's a, a great opportunity and so we had we had airline pilots had a number of airline pilots in in our chapters that that were doing this just because it was fun it wasn't that same day-to-day you know which which terminal are we going to and where's the best food in that terminal kind of thing um it's it's kind of bringing even for for the, the airline pod that little spark that got them started in flying right none of us got into flying because it was dull and and routine and mundane and, and autopilot on and fly the the magenta line that that it was never the part check of when
0: it comes yeah
1: right yeah that's <laughs> yes, right exactly oh, but that was never yeah. part of anything that any of us i don't believe were looking at when we started flying and it clearly it becomes that simply because of the necessity of the job and the way it works but you kind of go back to Hey, this is fun. This is cool stuff that we're doing. Um, it's a little like pro athletes sometimes. Um, you know, they'll they'll make a comment like, "I forgot this was a game. I'm playing a game." Well, flying isn't a game, but it's still supposed to be fun. Um, and if it's not fun, maybe it is time to go do something else or add to it so that you're getting enjoyment out of it again.
0: A hundred percent. I think that is spectacular advice. And the cool thing is, is that at your current Job as the dean of the College of Aeronautics at Lynn University, you get to see kids with that spark every single day. So, can you tell us a little bit about Lynn, about the program, about your role there? Just kind of sum that up
1: for us. Absolutely. So, Lynn is a, a relatively small university, Boca Raton, Florida, um, pretty much downtown Boca, uh, about 3,500 total students here. Within the College of Aeronautics, um, we've got about 130 to 150 students, the bulk of which, about 115 of whom, uh, fly. So we have a fleet of 14 airplanes out here at the Boca Raton Airport. Uh, the uh, the workhorse is our Cessna 172 fleet. Uh, we have 12 of those. Um, additionally, we have a, a Baron and a Twin Diamond that we use for multi-engine. Um and so the kids will come in as freshmen uh under a uh degree program for their bachelor of science in professional pilot. Uh and then they will move forward through their uh private pilot certificate all the way through their CFI uh multi-engine and then on to whatever is sort of next. Usually it's flight instruction to build the hours, but it could be it could be really anything. Um, our program uh, really is is great growing um in june when right before i got here uh we had nine skyhawks and by the end of august we had 12. we actually we had so many new freshmen we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 some freshmen which is double our standard class that we had to go get additional aircraft Um, which uh, some people say it's a good problem to have and nevertheless it's a problem to to have to have to go find additional airplanes um, but we are, we are flying them, um, at amazing rates. I was at a, uh, Boca Raton airport authority meeting the other day and they go through some of the statistics that the airport has gone through over the previous month and month over month from September, looking back to August, they had a 94% increase in hundred low lead fuel that they sold. Wow. At which point the FBO <laughs> manager turned around and looked at me and said, that's all you. So... <laughs> so we are to uh, that you say you're welcome (laughs) exactly yes that's exactly right um especially given the the price of 100 low lead these days no kidding but uh but we are flying uh we are scheduled six days a week so six days a week so kids will either fly monday wednesday friday or tuesday thursday saturday yes we fly saturdays um from seven in the morning to ten at night we do fly sundays but that's kind of our makeup time either for bad weather uh, mechanical long cross countries because the, the flight blocks the kids fly during the week are two hour flight blocks it 's enough to get local stuff done, but if you 're trying to get a four to five hour cross country it 's not going to happen, so we reserve sundays to to specifically go do that um, and uh, so it, the program again continues to to grow we get lots of interest um, kids are calling parents are calling tours are coming through and uh, and we really think that we've kind of found. Um, it's a bit of a hidden gem here in Boca Raton. Um, a lot of folks have said to me, uh, I didn't know Lynn had an aviation program, to which I usually say, that's funny because neither did I. Um, <laughs> and so we're we're continuing to work on that, but the word is clearly getting out um, and our kids are doing some some great stuff.
0: That's wonderful. I was wondering if you could make the case for our audience for a student going to a smaller program, a smaller university. I, um, I I remember when I, and and this isn't directly related, but I, I think it's adjacent. When I went to college initially, I had gone to basic training the summer before and AIT and all of that. And I came back a little bit too late to start. So I ended up starting in the winter or the, the, the spring semester, I should say. And I look back sometimes and think that was a mistake. I, I might've been well-served to wait till the following year and start with a new class. Cause it was really hard to like make friends. Cause they all have friends. Sure. And, uh, right. You know, you were the so new- yeah. And I was going to an enormous, enormous university and an enormous program to boot. It was not aviation, but um, so anyway, I say all that to say, um, I was just curious to get your thoughts on, you know, what you tell people about going to a smaller program.
1: Sure. And, and I think that's, that's definitely something to, to, pay attention to. Um, you know. So in addition to the, the flight training that we have, the BS and professional pilot, um, we also have um, bachelor's degrees in both aviation management and aviation operations. And so anytime that you're talking about college classes, at least in my mind, the first thing that I usually think of is my very first calculus class day one at Boston University with 200 some odd kids in a theater. It wasn't even a classroom. It was a theater. Um the professor had no earthly idea who anybody was, and that was fine, right? There were a handful of TAs and they took care of it. So the ability then I think of the professor to interface with the students. Now it was calculus one, so there wasn't a lot of interaction. Um, but any of your courses um that you had that were core courses for your major, you kind of had to make an effort in these larger environments, I think, to get to know your professors um that's not really the case here at Lynn. with the small school environment um it does a couple things first of all the the living environment it's a college campus in a city it's really cool there's grassy areas and there's trees and there's places to play frisbee and it's just kind of the the stereotypical college environment um and we've got it right here in a big city which is which is kind of neat But I think then the other piece is it's that interaction with the faculty, not just from a teaching perspective. Um, I know in the College of Aeronautics, our faculty, all of our faculty have come from industry. Um, Academicians are great, but our folks are coming not from the academic side of the house, but from the industry side of the house, whether that was working for the airlines, for the FAA, for the military, um, FBOs they bring an expertise level to the real world that I think sometimes can get lost and that, that kids want to hear about. Um, I can read the books, I can do the research, that's fine, but tell me what your personal experience was. And, and we provide that I think in a smaller school environment where you can get to know your professor because you've got 15, 20 kids in your class. And so when the professor says, you know, hey Joe, it, he's really talking to you and knows you. And oh, by the way, throughout your four-year career, you've probably had that same professor for various classes. Um, we've got a, a very steady um, level of our professors. There's not a lot of turnover, and so you will see that same professor over and over again, which is really a good thing because again, you get to know them. Um, I my offices are right next to to one of our uh, our senior professors, and it is not unusual for me to be sitting here and kids will start streaming in because they're coming to talk to her. Sometimes, something specific about the class, sometimes they're just talking. Hey, so here's what I'm doing and these are the things I'm thinking about for my career and hey, I've got an opportunity to apply for this internship, what do you think? That's something that I think in some big schools, you're not gonna find. Um, or at least not to that level. And so there is a huge benefit to being able to have that, um, that's smaller, more personalized. Sometimes we refer to it as a boutique experience, but I, I like the personal experience as a better descriptor because I think that's really, at the end of the day, what it comes down to. It's coming down to an aviation professional and really any of our programs here at Lynn um, those professors with actual background in industry being able to relate to their students to talk to them not just in a classroom but outside and then forge those relationships throughout the rest of their career and kind of help again build that expertise and and desire to do whatever it is that that student wants to do again in our case it's it's primarily on the aviation side but regardless if it was uh, criminal justice or if it was biology to kind of build a bit of a passion because again if you're not enjoying what you're doing go do something else
0: yeah i think those are all really wonderful points and um the school i i went to learn to fly what you're talking about reminds me a lot of the school uh that i went to and i um now (laughs) you know they're no no longer a small school i mean it's they got (laughs) 600 students and i just went and visited and i was like blown away like their coffee machine is like newer technology than the, you know, than like some of the airplanes we've used to fly and stuff. Although we had in, impeccable equipment, frankly, but, um,
1: but coffee uh, is important. So, I mean, you can't <laughs> underestimate the requirement for a good coffee machine.
0: Yeah. Speak, speaking of star Wars, this thing looked like a spaceship. I got to tell you, but, um, they're doing great work, but you know, my, um, my, one of my mentors and, um, uh, now I guess I, I'll call him a friend cause his wife's said I, I can. Um, she gave me permission at, at my wedding. So um, but anyway, one of my one of my mentors, you know, some of my favorite memories were after I started instructing, he would stop by like in the mornings and I'd be working on stuff or reading, you know, reading up on stuff. And he'd sit and have a cup of coffee for 10 minutes and tell stories or give me his thoughts. And those were meaningful. And we were able to do that because I had had four classes with him over two years And, you know, I'd stopped by his office a handful of times because he was my advisor. And so we knew each other. And and that was possible because there weren't thousands of students to that one professor. And so there's plenty of benefits to go to a big school, but I think we really undervalue and underrate um, some of the smaller programs and the benefits that they, um, you know, that they can provide. One of the things I wanted to ask you about relates to the state of our profession right now. We're seeing an incredible evacuation of experience from this profession due to retirements. And along with that experience, wisdom goes along with that. And I think if we're not mindful about this transition, we're going to lose a lot of that common knowledge, common wisdom. And I want to know if you could ensure that your students left the university having fully absorbed one lesson or one concept. What might that be? And if that's not a great question, another way to ask it might be, do you have a favorite philosophy or rule of thumb or a set of guiding principles that you regularly fall back on that you would encourage your students to adopt?
1: So I think your your question is is tremendous and is a hundred percent the premise is hundred percent accurate. In fact, I just read an article, um, wish I could remember where it was, but it had to do with Where do we groom? Where do we mentor? Where do we build leadership in today's pilots, today's aircrew? And 30, 40 years ago, that started as a flight engineer on a 7-2 or an L-1011 or a DC-10 or whatever it was. And you spent years doing that and you learn from the captain in the left seat. And then you move to the right seat and you spent years doing that and you learn from the captain in the left seat. And eventually, 10 years later, you move to the left seat yourself. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. First of all, we don't have flight engineers, so there's sort of a a lack of opportunity to learn. But more importantly, because this turnover in the airline industry is happening so fast because of the expansion and the growth, and we can't get enough pilots, the amount of time that you spend learning in that right seat. Is pretty minimal, and so we have lost. And again, I'm quoting the article or paraphrasing it, but I believe it to be 100% accurate, we've lost a lot of that learning opportunity. Um, for those, you know, those six, eight, ten hour legs where you're doing nothing but flying straight, and you have a conversation that eventually will stop talking about what the food was like last night and actually get the flying stuff. That doesn't happen very often anymore, or at least not to the level that it used to. So, the one thing that I'm constantly getting on my flight instructors about is teach professionalism. And that probably is a little easier said than done. It looks really good on a business card. But what I mean is explain to the student that it's not just about going out to the airplane, starting the engine, going off, doing your power and power off stalls and whatever it is. It's about acting like a professional, like this matters. And what I mean by that, I think really is at the end of the day you literally have somebody's life in your hands now it may very well simply be your life lies the people on the ground but that matters and just as we build professional standards in multiple occupations teachers lawyers doctors there needs to be that sense that this is a profession to fly it is a responsibility to do so um at lynn all of our students Uh, when they go fly are wearing their uniform. So typically day-to-day that's a polo shirt with the logos on it, Um, and if black pants, black shoes. And if they don't show up wearing that, then they're treated as if they didn't show because that is the requirement because that's what professionals do. When they go take a check ride or a stage check, they're in their airline whites with their epaulets and a tie because that's what professionals do. Now, okay, there's your clothes but it starts to set that mindset. Um, it starts to get them to realize that this is not taking a biology class. This is something that's different, that this now becomes a career that means something not just to them, but to others and others that they have impact with. Um, I used to, uh, when I was in the air force, when I would certify new pilots, um, aircraft commanders or instructor pilots or, or instructor boom operators to then go out into the fleet and start doing their thing, um, I, would, I would give what affectionately became known as my picture speech. I would have them sitting in, in my office and I would show them a picture of my two kids. And I said, the fact that I'm going to send you out in one of my airplanes means that I would do this with my two kids on that airplane. Now, it's not my two kids that you're going to be flying with but it's somebody's kids. And I take that responsibility uh, very much to heart and it is very serious to me. And so if you're gonna go fly for me, then you need to make sure that you are always ready every day that you are being professional in that act. And I've had that conversation with our flight instructors here um, at Lynn as well, that, okay, you're not flying my kids, but you're flying with somebody else's kids. And then I asked them to turn that back to their student. Okay, today you're not flying with anybody else's kids, but you eventually will. And that's why this is a profession. It is something that, you know, we always say that that, that getting your pilot certificate really is just a license to learn. Well, yeah, no kidding. It really is. Um, I will never know everything in FAR AIM, and I will know not know every single page uh, of every POH, but I got to keep learning it. And I can't stop just because I've been doing this for a while. It doesn't mean I've got it all figured out. Um, And I think that constant learning, that sense of professionalism, that's really the thing that I I try to drive home again to both our flight instructors and then to to our students because they need to be able to take that to heart um, throughout the rest of their career. And honestly, if that's not something that they want to do, fine then go find something else but that's what it means to be uh, a professional pilot and that's really what we're trying to get our kids to to absorb and to live
0: I think that is perfectly said and I couldn't improve upon it (laughs) if I tried so I think that's a great place to start to wrap up so important Dave it's so been so great to have you where can our listeners find out more about you and about the university program
1: so, uh, lin.edu is our our website. You can navigate around um, for various things, the admissions process. Um, it does identify the individual colleges. So, looking at the uh, the College of Aeronautics, um, click on the uh, little plus button, and then you'll get more information about us. If uh, if any of the listeners viewers are are in the Boca Raton area, by all means, please give us a call. Come out, take a tour. We'd love to show your facilities. From my perspective, our toys are great, but I really want to show you our people because I think it's our it's our flight instructors and our staff or professors that really make the experience. So we'd love to have uh, have anybody come out if they have questions. There's methodology through um, the website to ask, and then there's phone numbers, and you can actually use your cell phone and make a phone call and, and uh, ask whatever you need to.
0: Love it. Well, really, once again, we really appreciate your time. I hope our listeners who have kids friends kids of friends, you name it, uh, who have, who want to go fly. I hope that they'll give you guys a call and come check you out. So once again, thanks for your time and to everybody listening, keep the shiny side up. We'll see you next time.